Well, hello, film festival friends, and welcome to a very exciting episode of Certified Forgotten. I am Matt Monigal. I am one half of your ha Matt hosts, and I'm joined as always by my video right, this guy right here, Matt Donato. How are you doing, bud? Hi, video left. I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, a few words about this podcast, because if you're listening to this for the first time, if you found the Real Love Film Festival um, and are exploring the awesome array of podcasts they have set up, which I recommend you do, then we are a primarily a horror film podcast. We talk about films that have five or fewer reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, and that number's a little arbitrary. Five is easier than three and harder than seven, so you know that's kind of the reason why we chose it, but primarily what we're interested in is movies that sort of fall through the cracks of modern distribution. So, you know, with a million amazing, awesome independent film festivals like this one popping up every year with so many films and the barrier to entry for filmmakers getting lower than ever, there's just a lot of really, really good horror that never, ever gets seen. So in our best episodes, when we're on the top of our game, Matt Donato and I find those, we catch them and we bring them to you. That sound about right? Yeah. Also, we have a cool new theme song. So yes, hey. we do. We do have a. If you are if you are a longtime listener, thanks for following us to the festival. That is a brand new theme song. You're going to hear that on every episode going forward, and we'll shout out the creators at the the very end of this episode. But um, for this episode, we're going to be talking about a very special film, which means we had to have two two very very special guests. So Donato, please do the introductions, man. I will gladly do the introductions here. Uh, I've been trying to get both of them on the podcast for a long time now. So this is this is nice coming up together for a special event. I think mm -hmm. we held it for the right reasons. They have requested that I refer to them as the Queens of Collider, or at least one person requested that and demanded that. I won't specifically say which one did, but you know them as Collider's The Witching Hour podcast host, as well as the Queens of Collider. I won't even take that away from them. So I will introduce, as always, Perry Nemiroff and Haley Fouch. Perry, Haley. Welcome. Uh, why, Hi, friends. why do you indulge me like that? <laughs> you because you gave me the opportunity like I wasn't going to. <laughs> That's oh, perfect. I mean, when you come into when you come into the room and basically say, "Hey, I do the introductions here." Uh, I've been trying to get both of them on the podcast for a long time now, so this is this is a nice coming up together for a special event. I think mm -hmm. we held it for the right reasons. They have requested that I refer to them as the Queens of Collider, or at least one person requested that and demanded that. I won't specifically say which one did, but you know them as Collider's The Witching Hour podcast host, as well as the Queens of Collider. I won't even take that away from them. So I will introduce, as always, Perry Nemiroff and Haley Fouch. Perry, Haley, welcome. Uh, why, Hi, friends. why do you indulge me like that? Because <laughs> you, you gave me the opportunity like I wasn't going to? That's oh, I mean, when you come into when you come into the room and basically say, "Hey, I only have one request, and it's please refer to us as the queens of like." Then I'm like, "Okay, we got to do that. We have to honor that, right?" I appreciate that. So, Haley Perry, this is your first time on our podcast, which means you get the opportunity to talk just about yourselves for a little bit uh, here on Certified Forgotten. We talk about the film. We're going to get into breaking surface a little bit later in the episode. But one of the things that really excites us is kind of hearing about film critics and filmmakers and their history with horror and how they came to love the genre for themselves. So I'm actually, I'm going to start with Haley. Um, and I'm going to ask you the question I'm going to ask Perry in just a second, which is what were those first couple of horror films for you? What do you remember watching that got you really excited for the genre when you were younger? Um, uh it's very specifically Nightmare on Elm Street 3 was the first actual horror film I saw. And it was not allowed. I, Perry's heard this so many times. I think I apologize to you, but this is the cost of being my friend. I love yeah. it. 
post. <laughs> um, I went to a sleepover. I was super not allowed to watch R-rated movies in my household. Uh, but that household had more relaxed rules. And I came home with a bunch of nightmares and a new obsession. And like the, I, I was allowed to watch Jurassic Park. That was a major factor into why I'm like such a monster obsessive now. I got a little Indo-Rex up here. But um, those were sort of two really essential ones. And then, you know, that, that Wes Craven-y seed that was planted with um, Nightmare 3, even though he didn't direct that one. But it fully blossomed when I, I became the like hardcore obsessed with Scream once. I wasn't allowed to see it in theaters, but once it was on video, my cousin and I spent an entire summer vacation just watching it and watching it and watching it and watching it to the point that when we drove her home from her stay at my house, we just recited the whole movie in the car. And my dad was like, I'm so glad this is over. Well, I like that. And Scream is a kind of like an obsession film. Feels like a good one because it has its own footnotes, right? Like you have the ability to be like, oh, I watched this horror movie and it literally says, hey, here are all the other horror movies you should also watch. So was that part of the discovery process for you? Did you find yourself going out and watching every horror movie you could find that was referenced in Scream? Oh, definitely. And I think there's something really exciting about, and I'm sure Perry might feel the same way because she's, I know she's also a Scream obsessed. Everyone knows she's Scream obsessed. But uh, it there's something really pure to being able to see it for the first time, not knowing that stuff and falling in love with Scream the movie and then having that open up the whole genre to you. Like, I love the way you say it has its own footnotes. Exactly. It does point you in all the right directions. And like, not to me too serious, but after my father passed away, which will probably come up again since we're talking about sisters, uh, that kind of removed the no R-rated movie restrictions in the household. So right around that time after seeing Scream, it literally was like the whole world of movies opened up to me. I wonder if, cause uh, I'm a creature feature fan as well. And you drew it immediately back to Jurassic Park. And I never really did in my own mind because my early stages were Jurassic Park as well. And I definitely was terrified when I watched it the first time. Like I watched it too young for myself. It was one of the first horror experiences I had. And I had specific nightmares about the Velociraptors, but also like, I think that might've been what created my love for creature features as well. Like that makes sense now. Like that just like made sense in my own head. <laughs> I've opened up a new world for you, Donato. You're welcome. I'm always like getting into some childhood stuff, I feel like, in this podcast. Yeah. So it's a fitting yeah. intro. Yeah, I sort of feel like Certified Forgotten is just a weird horror therapy session for Donato and I, where we get to like work out our childhood obsession with the genre with our guests. So I maybe that's healthy, maybe that's not, but it's what we're doing. We're like 40 episodes in, so we're gonna keep doing it. Seems Perry, I want to open the floor to you um, for the same questions, kind of talking about those early horror films and what made you such a big fan of the genre. I don't know what you guys are talking about. Scream has nothing to do with my love of horror. <laughs> that, that was obviously a big one for me. The first one I ever remember watching, though, was I was a teeny tiny child, and I must have been probably four or five, and I was at a friend's house, and she put on Killer Clowns from Outer Space. And at the time, I didn't understand that that was a horror comedy, but now I do know that, and I love it for that reason. But that's kind of what started it all. I'd say the next one I have a vivid memory of watching, and having uh, situations where that movie definitely kept me up at night was probably Poltergeist. And then 
I think that the the real clear love of genre and the fact that I preferred it to other genres hit me full force when I saw Scream. And like you guys described, that was a gateway experience for me. I had never seen the original Halloween and I watched it because of Scream. And I explored Wes Craven's entire filmography because of Scream. And I have a cat named Deputy Dewey. I am mildly obsessed and very proud of it. That's amazing. I'm sorry, what, what did you think Killer Clowns was when you watched it, a documentary? I thought, I thought, you- I thought it was a truly like, straightforward, horrific uh, clown movie. Like I was never afraid of clowns as a kid, but I definitely laid awake at night thinking that I was gonna be in a cotton candy cocoon with a clown drinking my blood. See, the clown for me is Poltergeist. Like that, like, oh my God, the clown and Poltergeist. Again, Velociraptors and the clown and Poltergeist, Little Donato nightmares, 100%, maybe sometimes both at the same time as the Velociraptors clawing me and the clown laughs. But that's, again, therapy. I should probably save that one. (laughs) The Poltergeist scare that kept me up at night even more. I used to have, um, you know, I used to think I would see the trees moving in the backyard through the shades. But the one that really freaked me out was was the braces scene. Because I knew, like, braces were inevitable for almost all children. I was going to have them eventually. And that scene genuinely terrified me. Yeah, I know that um, our friend Mary Beth McAndrews and Terry Wright run the Scared to Death podcast, which basically talks about those those first films. Um, and then people that have listened to the show know that the first movie that scared the hell out of me was Tremors 2, which is not a really cool thing to admit as like a professional film critic is like I stayed up in my like 13 year old, you know, terrified state of mind all night long because the, the little walking creatures in Tremors 2 had scared me so bad. But you know, you can't, I, I don't know. I feel like you don't always get to control what the first horror movie you see is. And so it could be Killer Clowns. It could be Tremors 2. It could be you look back and say, oh, it's super silly. But whatever that first one was, man, it it's going to scare you. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether it's regarded as funny or not now. Even thinking about things like uh, episodes of Are You Afraid of the Dark, a show that was yeah. horror but was very much geared geared towards children, there's still certain visuals from that series that'll uh, creep back into my mind. We'll talk a little or bit. The, um, uh, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, for me, like the scary stories to tell in the dark art was even before movies came along, giving me little creepy energy and making me a creepy little weird kid. <laughs> yeah, I think probably we all owe X-Files a fair amount of uh, therapy bills too for the amount of damage that did because some of those episodes today still scare the shit out of me, which means, you know, they were doing their job well. Independence Day. Independence Day yes. in theaters was yes. the first the first time like my dad was like, all right, go see the movie. Your mom's not home. Go with your friend. Your friend's mom will take you. I He's like, I'm not telling you to, but go for it. And the scene where... Mr. Crazy Doctor gets thrown against the glass and is taken over by the alien and used as a puppet. That was the first time in a theater I was like, I'm terrified, but I kind of like it. What is this feeling? Yeah, and I'm like several years older than you, so that's doubly embarrassing for me, but 100% it was Independence Day. (laughs) Definitely, definitely another scary one for me. Well, Perry, um, I'm gonna, I wanna ask you to, um, and Haley, you'll get this question in a second, so you'll have a moment to prepare. Talk about how that love of the genre has kind of informed your career as an actual film critic. You know, how you, you know, went through the process in high school, college and beyond, kind of established yourself as an important voice in this industry and kind of how you retain those connections to the genre that you love throughout, how that informs the work that you do. 
Well, first off, fair warning here. Dewey is in shedding season. So if there's there's hair <laughs> floating or on my face, it's because he's on my lap and I keep touching my face, which is dumb because I'm allergic to him. <laughs> but for your actual question right now, I think it made a really big difference for me when I was first starting out in this industry to have to have something that felt like a safe space that not only I really understood, but I had such a, like an uncontrollable passion for. I love film in general and I'll watch everything and anything that comes my way. But there was something like, especially when I was first starting out and feeling out the industry, I just felt comfortable covering horror. And that was also one of the first uh, communities within a community, I guess, that I found. I found it, I found it the easiest, Matt knows, to make friends through covering genre festivals and just films in general. Because when you go to these screenings, like I have a lot of friends who are just like, you know, horror is not for me and I'm not going to go to that screening. But there's always the same faces at all of the horror releases. And I think that makes a pretty big difference. Yeah, Haley, same question to you. How has that informed your career? I mean, so like I, I remember very specifically, I didn't study journalism or even really set out to have this career. I, I had other aspirations and then life came and does what it does best. And effed everything out the door um but i what's interesting about that is i do remember making a list of like in college things that would be really cool things i would love to do and one of them was <clears throat> when i was coming up and like to really into my horror fandom my site was shocked to you drop and i was like running horror content the way that ryan turk does that would be a cool job um, so it was always, even when that wasn't what I was studying or setting out to do, it was in like my mind space as a, as a, a dream job, so to speak. Uh, and then I think everything Perry said is completely right. It is a inherently sort of bonded community. I remember the feeling of going to horror conventions when I was younger and it's like, you just know the people there, even if you don't know them, like you have this shared bond and I think it's not even I've been to a lot of different kinds of conventions and that's always there but there's something about horror that's like people tell you you shouldn't like it so it makes that bond even stronger it's like you're you're rebelling in a weird little way even though it's one of the most popular genres so that makes no sense but you, we all know that the the shade is real against horror um and that does translate into the industry. I remember going to a morning screening of Nurse 3D all the way over in Santa Monica. And there were like 10 of us. And it was like, you know what? The people here at 10 in the morning are the real ones. Like, we're in this together, y'all. Let's do it. Um, so that, that is right to the heart what Perry said. <laughs> I remember all those... Uh screenings for horror films you mentioned like those are the real ones on the nurse 3d and all the times that i was in new york and it was either harry or it was eric wakuski or maybe both of them at the same time and we were drunk on a friday night because we had to watch the boy but like all those times there was no like press screening for a horror movie and that was that same moment for me of like the real ones in the sense that like we were still going to go out and see the pyramid uh the interrupted or whatever like that greg I, I i forget even what the movie was but like some crappy movie about a kid and native american like hauntings and things like that 
but all these movies that never got like the attention and the releases, but we were still like, we're going to go see this and report on it because we are horror critics and this is what we do in love. And like, it's not going to stop us. So like those, those were my real one moments in the sense of like 10 AM after a like literally me and Wolkowski hung over on a Saturday, like Saturday morning watching the pyramid in an empty theater at 10 AM because like, yep, we're here. We're doing this. It's like, it took effort to be there. You know, you're oh, hard. Mm-hmm. It was like painful to be there. Like, oh, because the movie was bad too, but still like painful, like physically to be there. Yeah, I definitely miss um, all of those terrible films. You had to go to like Times Square to watch back when I lived in New York. You know, that was, that was, there no, no other reason would I ever go to Times Square except to watch some like 11 p.m. only showing of something that's going to be gone in four days. You know, it's moments like that where you realize like, oh, I think, um, I think this is more of a lifestyle than like a freelance career. I think, I think I'm just sort of in it now. That's pretty much what it felt like. Those screenings were either for movies like The Boy or they were for the Frozen sing-along. <laughs> oh, you know, that was the other film we were going to talk about on this podcast. Yeah, and then we, and then we decided to, to punt on it. So. In your wheelhouse. Very yeah, it, had, it had a few, it had a few too many reviews. <laughs> yeah, more than five. Yeah, it had more than five reviews, unfortunately. <laughs> Well, before we talk about um, the film for today, the last question I have for you guys is, you know, this is the first run of the Real Love Film Festival. It does, it is not strictly speaking a horror festival. I think we're actually the only technical horror content that's on the program, but it has its roots in the Brooklyn Horror Film Festival, has a little bit of roots in Nightstream because of what some of the programmers have done and the contributions they've made to those festivals. So Haley, I'll start with you. What um, what kind of relationship, what do you think is the importance of this independent film festival scene to you as a genre fan? You know, if not the Real Love Film Festival, stuff like Brooklyn Horror, stuff like Nightstream, these organizations that are finding and putting stuff out there. What does that do for you as both a horror fan and a, and a critic and a writer? Well, it is that community thing again, right? And that's where you find a lot of your writer dies is at these uh, really niche festivals. And uh, I mean... I helped program real love. So I'm like in it with this festival. And I think it's when, when Joseph, the program director or festival director came to me, um, I was surprised because I have not programmed a festival before, but I was like all in it's like, I'm such a dummy. I didn't like ask any adult questions about like, you know, how does it actually work or what's the payment scale or anything that like you should know. I was like independent festival and I get to be a part of it and year one and help build it. Don't care about the rest. I'm doing it. Um, and I like when it's the genre festivals in particular, we do have that sort of grounding shared thread that you get at the conventions that you get at those 10 AM screenings, stuff like that. But I like the, the idea of this one in that it's, it's celebrating like a, a broader concept. They also have ties to, you know, the North Bend festival. And I feel mm-hmm. like that's the same thing. It's like North Bend's about an energy, real love's about love. Um, I love that. And ugh, I love that. But um it makes me excited to see that sort of niche community built around other things that aren't just horror, because I think that's a really wonderful experience that everyone should get to have. And I've been to like some of the bigger, broader film festivals, but it doesn't have exactly the same like bro vibe. I don't know. There's just something about these, these smaller, really focused, the energy is so specific. The bonding is so specific. And 
to speak to like what it means as a writer or critic on that professional end, it allows me access to films that I wouldn't get to see that wouldn't be on my radar. Um, that, that, you know, especially things like Fantasia and Fantastic Fest, there are international movies that we wouldn't get to see for a few years probably. And it's, the best. I love it so much. I'm rambling, but I love it. It's really important to me. No, I, I like to use the word niche to kind of describe it too. Cause I think, you know, as, for me as, a, as a, a film critic and somebody who loves independent festivals of all stripes, one of the things that I think these add is the ability to step outside of sort of the boxes, right? Because the larger film festivals, they care not exclusively, but they do care about premiere statuses. It's about who gets the stuff first. And you know that you have so many buckets for this many films that are international, this many films that are genre based. You know, they're trying to assemble a lineup that kind of has a few of those like set parameters on what you can have. And when you get into the niche film festivals, kind of like the, the subgenre or genre related festivals, something that's talking about love, something that's talking about horror, I feel like there's a lot more freedom to just program the things that get you excited, program the things that you can find. And you don't need to say like, okay, wait, no, we already have four horror films, so we can't have a fifth horror film because that's gonna blow up the balance of our programming. It just really allows you, uh, the festival itself and the fans to come and just say, I know I'm gonna see great stuff because all that other stuff kind of got taken off the table. It's just about the best movies that they could find. Yeah, and I do want to speak to this being the only genre in the festival. We tried. It just wasn't love-themed horror movies weren't really uh, <laughs> available right now. 2020 so, wasn't a big year for love-themed horror, apparently. Yeah, and I, I don't, maybe they all already came out last year. Uh, production times are strange. But I did try. I was really, I was like, we have to have a horror movie. So I'm so glad we're doing this because we need some genre up in this this love fest. Well, I think, and that's a larger, uh, broader kind of question because it's like, where is the love-based horror? Because we we have plenty. Don't get me wrong. It's like, and we have our favorites with the Springs, and for me, even like after Midnight last year, like that was yeah. love-based horror done really well for me. But it's not in the forefront of the genre. Like other than that, like love-based horror is kind of like Bride of Chucky and stuff like that, which has different appropriations of horror and different right. views and uh, on uh, sorry on uh, romance. So it's. I feel like there should be a bigger push for horror and love because it is there. It's definitely represented, but I kind of wish there was more of it because we're we're a bunch of we're a bunch of saps too. We may be horror fans, but like we got emotions too. Lots of them. The most recent that comes to mind is uh, Matt. I know you love this, Spontaneous. Yes, That's probably the the most recent one I can think of. But I think there there should be more uh, Nina Forevers and the loved ones in the mix right now, and there's there's just not at the moment. Well, the loved ones again is a it, to call it romance is well, an interesting kind of romance. I think if you want to find something that uh, that fits the bill in this scenario, that would pass the test. It's a it's, romantic horror is a big tent. We can we can bring a lot of different <laughs> a lot of different titles in under that. Uh, Perry, before we talk about today's film, I just want to hear from you too, kind of how you um, resonate and and connect to the the genre and independent film festival scene. Yeah, uh, I'm from the professional standpoint first no matter the festival the opportunity to be one of the first to champion a movie and one of the first to make sure that really great movies wind up getting maybe distribution or just getting seen in general is something that really means the world to me and it's it's like a major part of the core of what drives me to do this work but then on a you know on a personal and i guess more selfish level 
I don't know what I would do without having a steady stream of these independent film festival events where I can see and hang out with my friends. When I think back to, I guess, some of my favorite memories of even just the last two years, the first things that come to mind were, I guess I would say North Bend, hanging out with Haley in a teeny tiny town. And I've never been in a town like that before. And just, I don't know, the idea of it being such a small, like close knit group of people who were always at the same things every day. That was a really special and unique experience. I adore going to the Sundances and TIFFs of the world, but you don't have that same sense of community at the big ones. And then I think about going to New Orleans with, with Matt and a whole contingent for Overlook Film Festival. And Overlook has been uh, one that's made such a big impression on me over the years because, you know, as it jumps around from location to location, even the location that they set it at winds up influencing the sense of community, whether it was the Timberline Lodge, again, where we were completely secluded, or a place like New Orleans where... I don't know, we kind of just, we, like we found our group and we went out with them and pretty much everybody who was there for that festival would be at the parties at night. And as, as silly as it sounds to be like, hey, film festivals are fun because we all get to party and have a drink after. That's also where you get to spread your love for the movies that you saw. So it's an important part. And just to shout out Brooklyn Horror also, because that one made an indelible impression on me because it is the film festival that screened the one feature film that I produced. And that might be one of the most memorable nights of my entire life. And Matt did such a good job hosting all of that because there was like, there was a lot, there was a lot going on there. And it was just like, I was so proud to bring the people that I loved working with so freaking hard on that movie to that venue to share the movie with the crowd, but then also doing the horror trivia and everything. It just created the perfect vibe in that building. And I, I love that night. I think it's it's very easy to get lost at a bigger festival, I guess we'll say, as we, you know, we talk about the importance of indie festivals. When I go and cover something like TIFF, when I go and cover something of that nature and that scale, it becomes about the work and it becomes more about I'm there to cover prestige titles and uh, network with the right people because I'm in this area now in this venue where I can. And it just, I think it's easy to get caught up in that. It's easy to get caught up in yourself and doing that kind of thing where in an independent festival, it's everything that you guys both just said. It's going to this little community. It's going to this place where everyone has this shared interest and yeah, we're there to do work and don't get me wrong. Like all of us do the work, all of us put the content out. It's there. Everyone knows what we're doing, but at the same time, we're there because like it's summer camp for us and it's summer camp that it makes us sleepy and makes us, you know, very anxious and stressed because we have so much going on, but it's always worth it. And that's the thing that we walk away with. It's always worth it because of these memories that we're calling and hell, I wouldn't know Perry if it wasn't for a small indie festival that I covered and covering the short section, no one, you know, shorts kind of get the short end sometimes. And if I hadn't covered those short sections, the first child eater iteration, I wouldn't have met Perry, probably wouldn't have met Haley by, you know, just by association at that point. Uh, everything gets tied back to these little festivals for me, and I'll never forget that. You know, the work is great. What we do is awesome, getting quoted and stuff like that. Cool. All these little things that come along with being a critic. But when you get to go to an indie festival and just be around people that have the same mindset and same drive and everything, is, it's, it's a nice thing. 
Well, that actually serves as a really good segue to talk about today's film, because we've got somebody who's had a produced film at a film festival. We have somebody who's programmed a film festival. We have people that have covered film festivals. So we're going to this particular film that we're talking about today, Breaking Surface, um, had a very short uh, but hopefully impactful festival career of its own. So we're going to talk about that and we're going to talk about kind of every side of what it means to have a horror film in a festival right now and kind of where you go from there a little bit, too. So. Uh, when we come back, for those of you that haven't had an opportunity to watch the film yet, we're going to show you the trailer just so you can get a little taste. It's available on every streaming platform you can think of. So go out and watch it after this. But when we come back, we're going to dive into the movie proper. Bye. It's good to see my... Kolla batteri och mottagning. Shit. Nu, vi får nog ta in grejerna till överhänget. Om något går till helvete. Hur mycket luft har du kvar? 55. Titta! De är inte farliga, de är bara nyfikna. Vad hände? Varför stack de? There you go. That's pretty exciting. Um, a few words about the film before we start the conversation. Uh, so Breaking Surface is a 2020 film. It's a Swedish and Norwegian co-production. It's directed by Joachim Heden. Uh, it stars Mo Gamel as Ida, who is the older of the two sisters and somebody who's kind of reached a bit of a transition point in her life. Her marriage isn't going as well as it has in the past. Her kids are kind of feeling a little bit of attention in the household as well. So she travels um, to visit her family and spend some time with a younger sister, played by Madeline Martin, um, who is going to, they're going to go diving. It's a family tradition for the two of them. They have done this for years and years and years. But, you know, sometimes when you spend time with your siblings, stuff comes up a little bit too, tensions come up uh, that you've been sitting on for a little bit. And unfortunately, those, that's exacerbated in this situation by the fact that the younger sister, Tuva, gets trapped under a rock at the bottom of the ocean. and. You know, you have like a little bit of time, 20 minutes in the tank. You've got to get her up. You've got to save her. So it's very much a survival horror film. It had its premiere at Nightstream in 2020, like I said. And it hit the it hit theaters late last year, late 2020, or streaming late last year, late 2020, and has kind of uh, fallen off a little bit by the wayside. You know, it had played at probably the most prominent genre festival of 2020 in a very weird pandemic year. And that still kind of wasn't enough to bring it up on the, the spotlight for a lot of horror fans. 
So we're going to talk about that today, and we're going to see if this film deserves a bit of a second chance, which I hope we agree that it will. I'm going to start with Perry again for this one, just sort of initial impressions. You know, usually we ask our guests to bring a film with them. In this case, we were just so excited to talk about this one that we kind of pushed it on you. So what did you think when you were like, all right, I got to watch this movie? Um, what were your first impressions? Um, I'm glad you did. I, I do really like all forms of survival horror. And in particular, I find myself drawn to the more contained ones where it's something along the lines of an open water or a movie like this where it focuses on one location, a small group of characters. This is definitely something that suits my taste. And I thought the whole thing was very well executed, super tense from top to bottom. I don't know how much you want me to get into criticisms right now. I have one glaring one. Do it. You know, you know, I feel like all of I you already know. know. I, I already know. I'm not, I genuinely, I know I'm, I'm overly sensitive about this kind of stuff, but I did genuinely find it distracting in this case, how the movie treats dogs. Yep. I mean, that, that's not a funny joke to feed a dog a cigarette butt and then to joke that this is your second dog. I found that extremely off-putting at the very beginning to the point that it was almost hard to uh, to get behind and root for Tuva. Eventually I did because of the, the situation and I thought that part of it was very well put together. But that was a, a, major, uh, a major flaw of the introduction of the characters for me. And then, obviously, you guys saw it in the trailer, there's another dog in the movie, and that just felt totally unnecessary. I think because I'm so so hyper-focused on it, definitely plays a, uh, a factor in me having such a big response to that. But also, even if you take that out of it, that, mo that moment does feel like just a device. Like, if she goes to any other location, there needs to be a life-threatening thing there, and what are you going to do in a remote house? Oh, just throw a dog in it. That's what it felt like. And it felt unnecessary. I think I would have felt the suspense and tension if she was just in the house looking for what she needs. The dog didn't need to be there at all. And I'm not a fan of that part of the movie. Yeah. Let me throw this out there for, um, for fans like that, because, you know, I got a dog a few years ago and it totally changed how I seen that stuff in movies. I was like, Oh, before I was like, what? And now I'm like, Oh my God, the puppy. So I feel you on that. Um, and this is the most surprising movie to ever horribly fail. Does the dog die.com like really, really terribly fail their test. So if that's something that bothers you, keep that in mind going in. Um, because there is a dog, there is a dog that does die. I will say it's not the dog that you think is going to die um, early on. So at least you have that. There's a little bit of a spoiler for you, but it does definitely, if, if we're talking about this for like love between a human and their pet, I, I'm not sure that's the most positive portrayal I've ever seen. I will say though, that that other dog probably will die because it's eating cigarettes. That's also true. Yes. <laughs> Haley, what did, uh, setting aside, setting aside the issues of the dog, what did you think? Haley? Well, I also, I did have issues with that and not just cause I'm a sensitive animal person, which I totally am, but uh, I, I just, it's the device thing. It's the, the, the cheapness of the writing to me that rubs me the wrong way when people use a living creature as a weapon just to, to spice up their scene. Don't care for it. But um, otherwise I do have some other qualms, but I, I, I just think that the main character is so stupid and it's a problem for me, but I think that the technical execution of the thrilling elements is fantastic. Like I was totally, you know, that sick to your stomach feeling you have it the whole time, really elegantly strung together to never 
really let you off the hook. Um, but but we'll get into that. I I probably as we talk about the sisters, I, and I wish if the dog cigarette thing hadn't been there, like I'm so into that other sister, and I think that the film kind of gives you a more interesting character and then sidelines them. Um, and I think it's a real testament to the filmmaking that I have all these character problems and Phil was on the hook for the whole movie. Well, let me let me ask about that because you were talking a little bit about um, uh, the Ida, the older sister and kind of her little arc. You know, what did you guys think? And Perry Haley, what, you guys can answer whatever, if you have anything you want to say here. What do you think about the way that the film sort of sets up the um, safety elements of diving? Because there are there are these two interesting contrasts that are going on, right? There's the older sister who is in over her head and the film just continues to pile on her a little bit. But the film goes out of its way, I think, to set up the premise as something that they prepared for. So many survival horror films are saying like, oh, like they drove out in the middle of nowhere, you know, they didn't charge their phone ahead of time and now their car broken down. Like you're like, okay, this was always inevitable. But this film takes the time to say they have safety tanks, they have a buoy, they have a fully charged cell phone and a satellite phone and then strips away all of that from them. So as people that spend a lot of time watching horror films, you know, does that make an impact for you in a survival horror scenario where they, they try and set the characters up to succeed before they make them fail? It It's a positive and a negative here because on the one hand, I can't speak to the authenticity of what happens in the movie because I know nothing about diving, but I fully believed everything they told me. And I appreciated getting all those details because when you, when you give all of that information effectively in the first act of the movie, when it comes back later on, it makes sense and it serves the story well. Where it frustrated me was exactly what Haley just brought up. I think the movie very well sells that Tuva knows exactly what she's doing. She does this for a profession after all. And as much as I understand sibling rivalry, having a sister of my own, I, Ida hasn't done this in a very, very long time. And, and Tuva at the beginning of the movie is so in control and so good at conveying this information and taking a breath and assessing the situation. And I trusted her implicitly. So when at almost every turn in the first act, Ida insists on doing something else, the frustration just grew and grew and grew. And I do understand in a life or death situation, emotions can take hold and you can have knee-jerk reaction things to things that don't entirely make sense. But there's only so many times you could play that card before you stop liking the character. And I think that did kick in. But again, I'm going to echo what Haley said. The thrill of the situation never dissipated. I felt it from top to bottom, even though I found her especially frustrating to watch. Well, I follow up question for that then too. You know, one of the things that I thought was interesting when the film kind of ran its course and I was thinking back on it is they they never really foreground the tension between the sisters. It's all subtext. They don't have this, I'm about to die, so let me tell you how I feel scene that a lot of these films have. So how um, how do you think that the film kind of balances that? Because a lot of the character decisions seem to sort of almost be taking the place of the conversations that they're not having that other movies might them have. You know, like Tuva could have said, you know, you always go into situations unprepared. You never listen to me. And instead, the film kind of showed that a little bit. So I'm curious how you two felt. Did it did it balance those? Did it feel a little bit like they were trying to turn the tension between the characters into the actions that Ida takes? Did that just not work at all for you? Well, I'll just say that I, I think the way you describe it makes it sound better than it plays because it does make her so infuriating. Like I, I appreciate not having everything spoon fed, 
but it's I think it's the consistency with which she ignores every piece of good advice becomes too too much for me to be like, well, at least they didn't tell us. Honestly, at that point, I'd prefer they just told us once and do something else. Because sure. it's like, I think that when it comes to that, if people make bad decisions in life or death scenarios, things that Perry brought up, that's better used uh, occasionally to heighten a scene, but not as the crux of a character's entire behavior pattern. No, I hear you. So I'm going to go back really quickly to a movie called 12 Feet Down, I believe it is. And I'm looking it up just to make sure. But it is, at, yes, 12 Feet Down. And it is, we'll call it an aquatic contained thriller. And it basically takes this premise to a degree, but does it in an indoor swimming pool and uses two sisters who are reliving their swimming days and covers them for a long weekend in the pool. And it becomes them trying to get out and it becomes them. One gets injured unintentionally. One is trying frantically to get the other out and save the other. I'm going to say they have a lot of the same character traits that these two sisters have. And in that movie, they spend the whole time bickering and fighting and they do the overdramatic side of it hmm. where like it was weird to, con to contrast these movies in a way because I'm watching these two films that kind of have the same concept and one is so far on one side and one is so far on the other side where I'm like, if there could have been an in-between here, I think like it would have been the perfect movie. And like also to go back to the beginning too, of like just talking about the movie like conceptually and like how it acts like, yeah, it is really good at the tension because they found a way to sustain this underwater you know, scenario where someone is losing air and there's there's a clock, there's time happening and you have so little time to get what you need done because in 12 feet down, it they do that by turning it into a killer scenario. So now you've locked these girls in a pool and you give them a way out and the way you keep them in is by introducing a psychopathic uh, character who's specifically leaving them there and toying with them the whole time. And you're like, so for me, Breaking Surface, you know, I guess I'm like drawing these comparison points because like Breaking Surface is so unique in the sense that it aligns more with 47 meters down and it won me over for that sense without saying if it had sharks, of course you have me, but like right. it doesn't. And hey, that's no, fine. no, no, it has, it has killer whales. It has killer whales for like a second. Aquatic. It does have killer whales. For a second. But they don't attack. So are that's they really right. killer? But in any case, like, yeah, like it's what they do with the sisters is frustrating sometimes to me I, i'm agreeing with everything you guys are saying with the same respect like looking at the other side of how things could have gone i kind of like this easily survivalist jumping right into it uh kind of mentality where we're just we're here we have to get it done we know what's going on versus the oh god we're trapped under a pool what are we going to do now i'm bleeding oh my god there's a psychopath like I don't know. It was a it was a weird juxtaposition to play in those. Well, I like kind of forty seven meters down as the middle ground of that because the sharks make it so they don't have to be dumb. It's like anything they try to do, the sharks are there to mess it up for them. Um, not that I'm like the people in that film aren't like geniuses, but they do a good job of trying to survive. Uh, and it, the added complication of the sharks makes it so that there's something working against them so they don't have to work against themselves so aggressively maybe. But I also did wanna like what you said about the clocks, I think is maybe the film's greatest strength. It, uh, it's a weird comparison, but it kind of reminded me of how 
Macquarie can do things with his Mission Impossible movies, which is that he sets up like six different clocks at the same time, which is kind of what this film has going on with the oxygen, with the how many times has she gone up and down, how much is left on this tank versus this tank, why this isn't working. Like they do a fantastic job of lining up a series uh, of ticking clocks to keep you engaged. I have a question. Did any of you ever get the impression that someone might have been doing this to them deliberately? No. Briefly. Briefly. Interesting. I I think that some of the ways that it was shot and edited made me feel like maybe someone was legitimately like, you know, I don't know how possible this is, but carving out pieces of rock and pushing them in. And I also got a little confused when she surfaces for the first time and the stuff isn't precisely where they left it. So for me, it was that first rock that hit. They do this very, the hills have eyes moment to me where Mm. they hold on the top of the mountain or the overhang, whatever we're calling it in that sense. And every right of it has to be that like, a rock fell. That's fine. You're in nature. These things happen. Avalanches happen. That's It works. But the way that they lingered on it and the way they held on the top of that overhang, I was like, somebody could be up there. I think it dissipates eventually. I think they do remove any doubt. But I did have that brief. That brief it took, it took like, a little while for me. Like it, it essentially colored every single thing that happened thereafter. Like when she kept harping on the house, I started thinking to myself, oh, that's where the killer is. Or, you know, even when, uh, you know, rescue seemingly arrives, I found myself dubious of that and whether or not that was going to help or hurt. Yeah, that's interesting. Because if if you if you start getting that suspicion, the movie does not necessarily dissuade that for like most of its runtime. You know, you can, you can kind of toy with that theory for pretty much 95% of the whole thing. Maybe up until even the last shot, we were like, okay, maybe maybe this was a natural disaster. I might have been harping on that for a while. Well, let me ask. Um, we talked a little bit about the relationships here. I want to talk a bit more about you know the way that it shot too, because Perry, you brought up open water um, a few minutes ago, which is great because I had these facts memorized just for this this moment in the podcast. You know, the reason why a lot of these survival thrillers are popular is because they're cheap. You know, open water costs less than five hundred thousand dollars to make and made fifty five point five million dollars worldwide. Um, which is a great return for the producers and for the filmmakers. And, you know, there have been millions, millions, probably not millions, lots of these kind of movies before where it's one location, you know, people are trapped in the car when it gets snowed under, people get trapped on a ski lift overnight and they're all inexpensive because they're these one settings. But this is not a film that strikes me as worried about, you know, the look and feel of it. It is such a pretty movie. Um, It is such an impressive, the the water, uh, underwater cinematography is so impressive and we've all seen really bad underwater movies so we can you know we can definitely appreciate the difference but this is a movie that looks like it was made for 55.5 million not 500,000 so talk to me a little bit about what you guys thought um with regards to the you know how it was shot underwater and how that kind of held and maintained the tension um from something we don't usually see in kind of these lockbox thrillers i think the way you describe it is is spot on. It it looks like it could be a $55 million movie, but shot on an itty bitty budget. And I just like how the cinematography always enhances the, the threat and the danger and how far away they really are from resurfacing, from breaking surface. I had to say it. Uh, we have a title. 
the the other thing I really love about the cinematography, and this also speaks to the script too, is I like the combination of having me feel lost in the darkness of the ocean, in particular, in particular, the bottom of the ocean, but also like we were talking about earlier, giving me all of those diving tools to ensure that I did think that the characters had a clear sense of the, the geography because geography in a contained movie is something that I, again, I could harp on that a lot. And I'm, I get very frustrated in movies that don't have a clear layout of that one location that you're stuck in. But here, I think it's a situation where the disorienting geography and the information they give you about diving well suit each other. I I think it is one of the standouts of the movie. And um, there is that that scene with the killer whales, even though like being the creature person, I'm like, they sh I wish they would have tried to eat them or something. Not the humans eat the whales, the whales eat the humans, just yeah. perfectly clear. Uh, but I, I don't actually wish that because I think that shot is so effective. It, it like it is the moment for me where I was like, okay, you got me. Now I'm in because that's creepy and spooky. And if I saw that happen, I would be freaked the hell out. And then, of course, it's immediately followed by a shit ton of action, which is great. But um, that, that, sort of sense of style is also really beautiful. Like it's a really good looking film. That shot of the whales, had they not skittered out and made you feel afraid, could have been like from a nature doc. You know, it's a, it's a beautiful looking film and they did make a lot of their money. And it is interesting because 47 Meters Down is one of the few movies I couldn't get through without pausing it because I can get so sick and anxious about the ocean. I think it's cosmic soup and it's dumb as hell than any humans go in it ever. Like, don't go in the ocean. It, it, don't go above the waist into the ocean and only do that in clear water. It's a foolish endeavor. So um, I thought it was interesting that I was so often like, wow, this is beautiful because I hate the ocean. <laughs> so anyway, props to, props to the photographers there and the cinematographers, but, uh, don't go in the ocean. I guess that's what I'm getting. That's what they don't get at too. Yep. Yeah. I was gonna say for me, it's I go to a movie like The Reef, and there are ways to film underwater cinematography, and there are ways not to, and there's even ways to get around it. I look to a movie like The Reef, which does a large majority of again, I'm gonna talk about a creature feature really quickly, but a large majority of its shark work is like pulled from National Geographic and pulled from these extraneous sources that aren't recreated they're just taking like oh here's some cool shots of a shark obviously the shark is nowhere near the actors and you see that because it's there's a very clear divide between the cinematography done above the water and the grainy like b-roll footage of the reef underwater because it's not really shot it's stuff that they kind of just found and stuff like that nature or at least it feels like it let's say so to have a movie like breaking surface which feels so natural underwater and it feels like kind of like we're just gliding through the ocean and we've been like transported there not like we want to because that's my nightmare you'll never get me take cave diving that's never gonna happen but to feel like that was just so natural and authentic and to be gripped again as well like i thought the shots were exquisite when you go above the surface when you when you're breaking surface and it's snowy and you get these amazing see their shots basically of like Ida breaking down in the snow, the dog just looking at her. There's 
for as poorly as they treat the dogs, and they do, and it's horrific, and all of those things. Nut is a great actor. Like the dog Nut is fantastic in the way that he is always contemplating what's happening and reflecting off Ida in the sense that like when Ida breaks down, Nut's breaking down. And Nut is just like kind of like pause, pause on the ground and just kind of like sitting there terribly. But as the snow is falling, the camera like goes up on the mountaintops and it's so beautiful in the way like the stone plays against the snow. Everything is so thoughtful in the cinematography. It's it's never forgotten. It's never there. And the last time I'll mention 12 feet deep, I might've called it 12 feet down before. I apologize. The movie's called 12 feet deep, but that very much felt like someone took a camera into a swimming pool for a long weekend and filmed their movie. This very much felt like Monocle just said, there was a tremendous budget that did not exist. So they were punching well above their weight class here. I like that you brought up the dog too, because the same way I feel about that shot of the whales where I'm like, my God, that's beautiful. Every time there's a shot of the dog, I'm like, look at that gorgeous dog. Yeah, he's such a good boy. <laughs> yeah, and so well photographed. The camera loves him. I'm gonna say that I'm gonna say that um, Tuba's brush with death got her to stop feeding cigarettes tonight. So I think that's that's the secret ending that I'm holding on to there. Well, last last question for you guys then. Um, you know, and I'm gonna draw on your experience um, by you know kind of behind the scenes in film festival life as well. This played at Nightstream. Um, a lot of really good movies played at Nightstream this year. Nightstream, if you're unfamiliar with sort of the the Transformers mashup, um, the Captain Planet of all the little independent horror film festivals that weren't necessarily going to be able to run this year because of the pandemic, they got to together and created a super online festival. And this is one of the films that was selected. I don't remember there being a lot of buzz about this one coming out. Um, that's sort of validated by the fact that there are five or fewer reviews of this film on Rotten Tomatoes. So thinking about this going forward, you know, Haley and Perry, do you think this movie deserves to find the audience that it's so clearly missed? And if it does, where does that exist? Is that, you know, is it, how does it kind of gain the following that it maybe dog stuff aside should have gotten as a really technical and competent survival horror film? I do. I, I would recommend this to anybody who likes the, uh, you know, the open waters, the reefs and the 47 meters downs of the world. But I'm trying to think of why something like this might have fallen through the cracks there because, and the only way I can really figure it out is thinking about my own process when it comes to picking films at festivals. And the way that usually goes is because festivals are work, I always prioritize what is best for Collider and what will do well on the site. But then with all the additional time I have, I do try to fill my schedule with as many things as I possibly can. And it simply comes down to the importance of that one image you always release at a festival and the synopsis for the movie. And, you know, I don't know what the image is. I don't know precisely how the synopsis for this reads, but I would like to imagine that if I had put more time into covering Nightstream, that this would have risen to the top of the list. If I read what I imagine would have been the log line for this movie, this this would have been a a priority for me just because as i said before this is the kind of thing that just you know it's in my wheelhouse it suits my interest in genre so it's a little surprising to hear that it it didn't make waves now i can't help it puns mm -hmm. all around but all right as far right. as uh, as far as what they can do from here i think you guys are are kind of doing it and that that speaks to the beauty of the horror community again is 
there's real there's real power in that community. There's real power in terms of, you know, just finding a movie that you love that is undervalued and telling your friends in the community about it. And then that voice does radiate out through, I know social media has a very negative connotation to it all the time, but social media can be a very powerful tool for us all as horror lovers, part of this group, just all kind of, you know, shouting out to the podcast, because there's people that want to know. There's people that listen to your podcast that watch our shows and they want to know. And, you know, if we're all getting behind one movie, which I think is very possible, even after a festival run like this one had, like you got to you got to take those tools and, and run with it. And I I know that even though I have clear issues with the movie, I will probably recommend it to a bunch of people I know who will be interested in it. I think that I hate saying this uh, while while uh, Parasite is still the reigning best best picture winner, but this is a different film festival. When I uh, I think a lot of times when you go to a film festival, it doesn't matter if there are subtitles or not. But I think that when you're talking about opening up your film festival digitally to the public, a lot of people don't want to watch subtitles, and like it's not like just going and sitting down in a theater and it's whatever is whatever. Like I do, I would imagine that was a factor for people who are like, well, what's a good horror movie I can watch right now? Oh, I don't know. I I just I know my family does that. So um, I also didn't like get a lot of buzz around this so i don't know how much that's a that goes back to the synopsis and marketing image that perry mentioned but i feel like usually i come out of a film festival pretty well aware of what played there even if i didn't see it again nightstream was very different it's not like you're at the bars although we were kind of at the bar but you know, <laughs> you're not at a real bar where you overhear people talking about every single movie that played. So that buzz probably spreads in a different way. As to like a future life for this film, I totally could see it playing well on streaming. It's the perfect kind of lean, mean survival thriller that plays well on streaming. What's um was an Australian film super mean uh, survival in the woods? Backwoods. No, dang it! It's not a creature. I won't remember. It's like killing grounds. Yes, I was gonna say like hollowed ground or buried ground, which doesn't <laughs> even make sense. But yeah, killing grounds. I only know because I'm always watching like all the data on Collider. But once that went on Netflix, my review suddenly got a ton of random traffic. So I absolutely could see people finding this in that kind of way. Well, and I think that's interesting you bring up Killing Grounds, too, because, uh, again, we, we all went to Nightstream. I was at Nightstream, too, and I covered it pretty extensively. And it's like the benefits of being at a Fantastic Fest or at a Fantasia is exactly what Haley just said. It's the fact that this probably would have played like an 11 a.m. slot or maybe like a 1 p.m. slot, 2 p.m. slot. And I would be getting to the venue as someone like Haley's walking out of the theater going like, yo, I just watched this aquatic like horror thriller. Like, and I would have been like, holy shit, I'm watching that immediately. I'm going to see that next time I can see it. But Nightstream, as we've all said, was a different festival. It was online. We're all stuck here in our own isolation to say. And I didn't get buzz on movies. I, I didn't get that feeling of like, uh, may the devil take you to like queen of black magic. I didn't see people talking about these movies online afterward. So I had nothing to like go off of. I just had my cursor, like cursory glance of everything I'm going to pick from and put my schedule together. And I don't know how this wasn't marketed directly to me. Cause this is everything <laughs> I want in a movie. 
And I didn't know about it at Nightstream. It didn't make my list. I didn't see it there. Someone's like, oh, it played Nightstream. I'm like, what? So yeah, there must have been something that didn't turn me on to it. And then going back to Killing Grounds, as I, you know, as you just said before, Killing Grounds went IFC Midnight, I believe. It got distribution by one of those, you know, bigger uh, horror labels. And this did not. Uh, this went to Doppelganger releasing, and this isn't a knock on them by any means. But as as horror critics, a lot of stuff comes out. We know that. And we kind of rely on, like, PR blasts. And this is inside baseball. But, like, yeah, we rely on the PR blasts. We rely on, P like, PR reps coming to us and selling their movies so that we can review it and put it out to the world and say, you should see this. And I went back, checked my emails, and the email I received on Breaking Surface was literally... I think the day it released, I got a single email that was like, Breaking Surface is out. Here's a link if you want to see it. Hope you like it. And it's kind of like, but that's already run our course. I need to, you know, as critics, we have like embargoes to me and there's all these things inside, but we need to be ahead of the game so that we can move forward. Because if I'm going to review something that comes out this week, I had to do that last week. That's just the way like this thing goes. So it was very odd to me that Breaking Surface just didn't, make that push it, it was at festivals it played festivals it didn't make that push for release and it kind of just dropped on december 22nd in the thick of awards season for a lot of people in the thick of holiday season for everyone so it's like all these things came together and it just kind of swam under the surface and if you look at rotten tomatoes it has five reviews but there's only one or two from the day of release so I think that's a testament to people discovering it afterwards because I found out about this by reading Megan Navarro's like top 10 list on Blade Disgusting because she put it in there and she's like, hey, really cool aquatic horror movie. All of you should see this. And I'm like, yeah, I should see this. Why haven't I seen this? Why wasn't this thrown at me? And it's just baffling to me that a movie of this caliber that we've just talked about and that looks as good as it does did not have any kind of push that put it into the public eye because... The other reviews, three reviews on Rotten Tomatoes are like, one is from like a week ago, one is from like two weeks ago, and one is from like three weeks ago. So I think people are going to keep discovering this. I just don't know why it's going to take, or why it's taking this long, because it shouldn't be taking this long. It should have been up there up front in December. Well, if only somebody had a podcast that would bring on awesome guests to talk about these very kinds of movies, Matthew. Oh, wait, that's us. And that's what we do. Did we do that? I think we just did that. I think that we have just given, I, and I don't want to brag, and it's not a knock on the Nightstream folks, but I think we just gave Breaking Surface more love on this festival um, than it did on the festival that it premiered at. So I'm hoping that if anything that we talked about, minus the dog stuff, sounds like something that you're interested in, that you'll go seek this out. Um, you'll let us know on, on Twitter, the little handles that you kind of see on there as well, that you liked it. And you know, if people do see this, um, want to talk about it, or if they just want to engage with um, the Queens of Collider, Haley, I'll start with you. What are some good places to for people that, you know, maybe this is the first time they've seen you talk about film. They want to know what you're about. Where should they follow you on social media? Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Haley Fouch. I don't tweet very often, but I've got a real killer retweeting curation thing going on. Just a heads up. I don't talk much there. But if you do like the way that I ramble and don't make sense ever, obviously watch The Witching Hour. That's where I do it the most. Um, and on... I'm trying, I'm trying to keep up on Letterboxd. I won't do it, but I'm trying to like log everything I watch. So um, I'm Haystack McGrave. No, I'm Haley Fouch on there and I'm Haystack McGroovy on Instagram. See, the rambling. Awesome. Perry, I know that all of your projects, a lot of them tend to involve the people that are here right now, but uh, 
Talk about uh, talk about where people can follow you and engage with you on social as well. I am on Twitter and Instagram at pnemeroff. I do the witching hour on Collider with that one. You got I the point. I do the merry hour. I I figured out like little visual tricks now to to get it done. I do the merry hour on my personal YouTube channel with that one up there. You could just search uh, my name in YouTube and it should come right up. And this guy has been very happy this entire conversation. Now he's mad because I woke him, but he's literally been sleeping in my lap the entire time, which means he likes you guys. It's the dulcet sounds of the mats. That's what that's what he appreciates. <laughs> Donato. How do people follow you in the 400 new horror films you watch a week? Uh, you can follow me at Donato Bomb, as said in this nice little label right there, uh, on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Instagram. Everything will be on the Twitters. Everything will be there on the Letterboxd and Instagram. I don't really use that much that often because I don't think people need a picture every day of my apartment. But when I go outside again, you'll see cool new pictures again. I want to know what you're eating, goddammit. <laughs> Show me what you're eating. You don't want to see the same box mac and cheese every day. Uh, as for myself, you can follow me on Twitter at LabSplice. That's uh, right there. We would encourage you also to go and visit certifiedforgotten.com. Yes, we are a podcast, but we're also a website, and we feature a lot of really cool criticism from a lot of um, primarily a lot of younger and newer writers. They have some really amazing things to say about some films from the last 20 years or so that, uh, that we're happy to share with our audience. I do have a few thank yous that I want to throw out here real quick, and I wrote them down so I don't forget. First of all, thank you to Joseph Hernandez and the Real Love Film Fest team, including this one right here as well, for uh, inviting us to be part of their inaugural run. This is such a cool idea for a film festival. I hope you take the time to watch a lot of the movies and a lot of the shorts. I hope you take the time to listen to the other podcasts that are being featured here. We have the Bad Romance podcast and This Ends at Prom. They're both uh, professional friends of pretty much everybody here. We love their stuff and I think you're really going to enjoy it. And finally, if you like that new theme song, which you're gonna hear again in a second, I cannot say thank you enough to Annalise Nelson who wrote the theme and Jason Kay, who literally, literally we are contractually obligated to say that he did the shreds. He wrote that into his ask. He did that electric guitar part. So he did the shreds for us. So thank you to both of them. Um, Donato, anything else you wanna say before we wrap up today? Just all the thank yous, all the everythings. Uh, I'm not gonna end today's podcast how I usually end our podcast because It'd be weird if I whispered into the microphone of the Demon Wind voice. So uh, inside baseball, yeah. if you want a little more of the Donato whispering into microphones, uh, check out our podcast and I'll uh, whisper Demon Wind at the end of every episode because apparently that's what we do. And one last big thank you to both Haley and Perry. You guys were awesome. We've wanted to get you on the show forever and Donato's right. We saved you for just the right episode. So thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you for having us. Yeah.